You're listening to What's Wellbeing Got To Do With It, a podcast from the What Works Centre for Wellbeing. In this week's episode, Deborah Hardoon, Head of Evidence at the Centre, asks, What has wellbeing got to do with children and young people? The thing that I made me happy is going to school. Children and teachers' kind of satisfaction with teaching and learning at the moment, that you know, the things that you kind of take for granted, those conversations, those interactions, those little, what some people call micro moments, just aren't there. I'm Sam and I'm 11. And how did you feel during lockdown? I felt sad because I couldn't go to school. People underestimate how important choice, freedom and autonomy is for children and young people. Um, I do art and I draw because it makes me feel relaxed and I can express myself. The economic impacts of the pandemic as the pandemic progresses will have real impacts on children as they grow up. We do very badly by the time our young people are 15, coming bottom for things like life satisfaction and sense of purpose. It's like um, reading and things that make me happy. Um, talking to people helps so much. Um, just talking to my family or like calling my friends and texting my friends helped me so much. Around COVID, I think the thing to just flag is it's a very mixed picture. I go on walks with my mum and dad and I play on the Xbox with my friends so I can talk to them. We have a great panel here today to talk to us about children's well-being. So just discuss how children are doing, what matters for their well-being and what we don't know yet. I'd like to hand over to the panel to introduce themselves. So hello, my name is Richard Crellin. I am the Policy and Research Manager for Wellbeing at the Children's Society. Hi, I'm Pravita Patale. I'm an Associate Professor at University College London. Hi, I'm Adrian Bethune. I'm a part-time primary school teacher and the founder of an organisation called Teach Happy. Great, thank you, Richard, Adrian and Pravita. Um, to kick off the conversation, I'll first turn to Richard. So Richard, the Children's Society have been measuring and reporting on children's wellbeing in the UK for a number of years now. Um, can I ask you to give us some headline findings from this year's Good Childhood Report? How are children doing in the UK? And I'm sure the question many parents and teachers and carers are concerned about, what does your research tell us about how COVID-19 has affected children and young people? By and large, I would say that the state of children's well-being isn't great in the UK. Um, we've been reporting now for many years that children have been becoming steadily less happy with their lives as a whole. Um, and also that there have been increases in the numbers of children with low well-being as well. Um, these are all very slow, well-being, very sticky, changes slowly over time. And the vast majority of children, of course, are still happy with their lives. But the numbers are all going in the wrong direction. Um, and when we look further afield this year, we looked at a range of European countries. We do very badly by the time our young people are 15, coming bottom for things like life satisfaction and sense of purpose. So it's not a good state of play for the UK. And lots of this data predates the pandemic as well. So you have to kind of add COVID in on top of that to really understand where we are right now um, as we kind of sit in you know, October of 2020. We were quite lucky in that our annual survey was in the field this year during lockdown. So we got quite a unique opportunity, um, almost uh, by coincidence, to look at children's well-being during this time. By and large, children seem like they were coping well. That has to be the kind of headline there. But there are some things we need to watch out for. They seem to struggle most with the relational aspects of lockdown. They really didn't like not seeing their friends, not seeing their family, and then having that reduced social contact. 
um, when we looked at the well-being scores, we see a really notable increase in the proportion of children with low well-being. Normally, we expect around 11-12% of young people to report that. This year it was 18. So, you know, you're kind of going from a tenth to a fifth in a sense. And it's, it's quite a big increase. It's really concerning that we've not seen before. Um, and another thing that they really particularly kind of picked up on in the data was that um, they were not happy with a level of choice in their lives. People underestimate how important choice, freedom and autonomy is for children and young people. We think as adults, we do everything for them. They don't need to have a say, but it's a really important factor in their well-being, and it really suffered under lockdown. So those are just some of the initial findings that we had um, this year at the Children's Society. And when you say that their well-being isn't doing great, um, how are you measuring well-being of young people and children? So we measure well-being using a couple of different measures at the Children's Society. Um, we provide the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, with um, the three measures of well-being that they use. So that's about life satisfaction, about sense of purpose and about happiness yesterday. Um, and then we ourselves have developed our own Good Childhood Index. Um, we have a, a multi-item measure of life satisfaction that's drawn from Scott Hoopner's work, um, which is very stable and really great for understanding, you know, kind of children's overall life satisfaction. And then we've got the 10 items in our index which cover 10 areas of life that we found to be particularly important to children's overall well-being. And that covers things like family, friends, choice, school. I could list all 10, but we don't have all day. Uh, and so um, together, we feel that this package of measures gives us a really good insight at the population level into what's going on for children, but also what some of the underlying themes might be that affect their well-being. Children answer on a naught to 10 scale. Um, so they've got lots of space on the scale to pick exactly where they are. Um, we put five obviously as the midpoint there. If you score less than five, so naught to four, we would term that as low well-being. And then anything from a five or above is, is you know, it's there are varying degrees of okay, but it's okay. <laughs> and so what do we know about those 18% of children that have low well-being? What are some of the characteristics that are associated with those young people? So there's a range of different things that will be going on for all of them, but there are some trends that we can kind of pull out that seem to kind of come up for that group a lot and, and hold across different years and in different places. Um, we know, for example, um, that there is, you know, an inequality around household income. So we do tend to see more children who are on free school meals or in low income households in that category. Um, as a general rule, um, a problem with the family, so reporting unhappiness with family or low family scores really kind of kicks everything out into the low well-being section. So, for, so if you're looking at a profile and a child saying, yeah, I'm not so happy with what's going on at home, I'm not so happy with family, that tends to have such a big factor as overall well-being, but it pushes a child into that low well-being category. We know some other things as well, um, slightly more girls than boys, older children compared to younger children. So, um, you know, uh, our 10 and 11 year olds in our sample are also incredibly happy, which is brilliant. But by the time they reach uh, 15, 16, 17, it is not the case anymore. Um, and we know there are some other demographic um, inequalities as well. So um, children um, who have um, minority sexuality, um, uh, so gay, lesbian, um, bisexual, transgender children, um, they tend to have lower well-being. 
And there are some interesting things around ethnicity, but it's very hard to work out exactly what's going on. So um, some ethnic groups seem to be particularly happy. British Indian children uh, often seem to come out quite well, but actually other groups of children seem to be less happy. Um, children with mixed ethnic backgrounds and indeed white children as well don't do so well. Pavita, can I turn to you now? How does this, how do these findings that Richard's presented relate to some of the research you've done on mental health and well-being of young people, particularly thinking about what's worrying young people now during this pandemic that still continues to affect their lives and in general in the in the longer term, thinking about young people's lives? Around COVID, I think the thing to just flag is that it's a very mixed picture looking at studies that have actually followed people over time. Some evidence that if you were an anxious young child struggling in school, that the pandemic and the lockdown and being away from school has not been so bad. And for other young people, it has been less good. The data actually much more mixed. Some children doing better, some children doing worse. And obviously we mustn't forget about the children who are living in um, difficult households. So being away from school for some children will be really, really hard because schools might have been the only place they were safe from, you know, a abusive household or, you know, violence in the household. So I think it's important to remember that there are very vulnerable children for whom the lockdown would have been especially bad with longer term implications for their mental health and well-being, but all sorts of other outcomes for that, them as well. And the economic impacts of the pandemic as the pandemic progresses will have real impacts on children as they grow up, because as we know, lots of people are losing their jobs, um, lots more children are going to grow up in poverty, and this has lifelong implications for their well-being, but also, again, their health, their economic and social outcomes, which are already... And, but yeah, I agree with Richard that the patterns by sort of social and demographic factors are sort of has he described and lots of things feed into children's well-being so we've done research with the millennium cohort study which is uh, Britain's um, largest and latest birth cohort study so it follows over 19,000 um, babies born at the start of the millennium regularly every few years and lots of things are related with children's well-being so their family their friends their school uh, but also the neighborhoods so we found that children who find their neighborhoods or think of their neighborhoods as being unsafe have much lower well-being um, inequality so relative income but also perceptions of inequality so really interestingly children who think that they are poorer or richer than most of their peers have worse well-being irrespective of their actual family income and um, lots of health factors feed into well-being so children who have poorer health often also have poorer well-being um, but not always the case so again there's lots of sort of complexity in how children um, sort of what affects children's well-being. Lots there about all the different impacts particularly from the family perspective and from the economic perspective that will have been affected quite deeply um, for some children over the last sort of six six to eight months and um, Adrian, you've been putting well-being in the classroom for over a decade now. And of course, schools have been affected enormously um, since, since the coronavirus came to the UK. So I was just wondering, um, what, what are you seeing that's unique about what's happening for children now, particularly with respect to the changes in the classroom? But also, what is this just exacerbating or continuing in terms of the trends and the um, issues of children's well-being that you're looking at anyway when you're thinking about well-being of young people in schools? The pandemic has affected young people, children in, in many different ways. Some 
during lockdown and coming back have absolutely thrived. So just think back to kind of lockdown where schools were still open, but just for kind of key worker and vulnerable children. Some children and families really thrived in that situation. There was less school pressure. There was more time at home with siblings and families. Uh, Some reports show that parents reported feeling that their relationships had strengthened during lockdown with their children. For some families, there was a a kind of physical act of slowing down, like less pressure, less intensity to their lives. And then we know that some children and their families kind of suffered. Uh, Reports of increase in domestic violence. We know that alcohol consumption in England in particular went up dramatically. And then you had parents stressed out trying to juggle homeschooling uh, with their own kind of work commitments and I heard of many families doing shifts like one parent doing the morning shift the other parent having to look after kids in the evening they swap around and they're literally working 24-7 to try and get all these different things done. In terms of kind of what I've seen in in my school we coincidentally we actually use the good childhood index um, to carry out a kind of pupil well-being survey And, and we're literally just about we are rolling out this year's pupil well-being survey so at the moment I can't compare how things have kind of stayed the same or different Uh, compared to this time last year. But anecdotally, I guess what we're seeing is that the majority of children have come back to our school and they feel settled and they're happy to be back. And and it's great seeing their friends and reconnecting with their teachers and and staff are saying the same things. I think what, what is different and maybe what's exacerbating some kind of issues is that like many schools, we're teaching in bubbles, which means there isn't the mixing of children. So we're a two form entry school, but one year group is a bubble. So children are just mixing with you know, up to 60 other children, whereas before at playtimes, lunchtimes, you'd have 250 children kind of playing together, interacting, and that's having an issue. We, we've carried out actually our teacher wellbeing survey and, and the initial results from that, a theme that's coming up is there was a really core sense of teamwork amongst our, our, our teachers. And they're saying working in bubbles means that sense of team, that sense of collaboration is it's not there at the moment because it's just one or two colleagues that they're seeing every day. So yeah, relationships, I think, are are the thing that's taken the biggest strain at the moment. It's just bubbles where there is an intensity of of kind of relating every day. There's there's less opportunity to go outside and play. There's physical restrictions that you can't go to certain parts of the building because that's another bubbles area. And I think that's just, it's just having an impact on children and teachers kind of satisfaction with teaching and learning at the moment that you know, the things that you kind of take for granted, those conversations, those interactions, those little what some people call micro moments just aren't there because you, you're physically having to stay in certain parts of the school with with the same people kind of all day, every day. Um, but one thing I just wanted to kind of mention where there was some kind of positivity during lockdown from teachers and children was that because schools were open during uh, lockdown for, for key work and vulnerable children, Anecdotally, many teachers uh, and families I spoke to during that period actually reported an increased level of satisfaction with school in that time. And that's because one, I think it helped the, the weather was really good predominantly during lockdown. So there was a lot of outside learning, a lot of kind of movement and physical getting outside, which is we know is really good for well-being. But I think most importantly, many people reported just an increase in the quality time they were spending with young people. So teachers getting to know children really well and vice versa. Children having that more focused, dedicated attention when normally it's, you know, one adult and 30 kids. Now it was like one adult and, and six to, to eight kids. 
they were learning new things, but without the pressure of SATs or uh, times table tests and uh, teachers were teaching without the threat of Ofsted appearing at no notice. Uh, there wasn't the constant monitoring of teachers like there normally is like learning walks and observation and performance management. And so essentially, like many people are saying, it was just good teaching. It was getting to know kids and teaching them stuff. And that was it without all of the other baggage that normally gets in the way. And I think, I think we can really, or we should be learning from that. Thanks. Yeah. So talking about children's well-being, it's clear we need to look beyond the individual child and look much more at the, the world in which they're um, living, both in terms of their family, their local community and environment, and indeed the school and the teachers that are, are working with them every day. Um, I think what's, what's interesting is in the UK, we're, we're now quite good at collecting data on adults' well-being. And since 2011, we've been doing that systematically as part of our annual population survey. So we've got really good data at the national level on how adults are doing. But we don't yet have such a formal and systematic collection of data for children. That's something that's being worked on, and the ONS actually came out with a new framework for well-being for children um, last week. But I was wondering, why do you think we, and this is open to any one of the panellists, why do you think we're so behind worrying about adults' well-being um, with respect to children? And who should be responsible for really um, pushing forward this agenda, focusing on children's well-being, collecting the data and acting on it? I think this is generally an issue across the board with children's mental health and well-being, that it's just been ignored for far too long. Individuals' mental health in the first two decades of life is really important for several life outcomes throughout their lives. However, in all sorts of ways, we've ignored young people's mental health, you know, in, in how it's funded, services for young people's mental health, research funding for young people's mental health. So essentially, although we know for a long time, we've known that percent of people who have mental health problems, the first time they experience them are before adulthood. But we, we don't seem to ever um, actually put, you know, money, resources, effort in the first two decades of life when it comes to mental health. And there's a specific issue around children's voices, I think. So even in the world of mental health research, for example. For a long time, we've, we asked parents about children's well-being. We asked teachers about children's well-being. It's taken a lot of effort to get to a stage where we ask children about children's well-being. There's this real arrogance in, I think, research, but generally across the board, where we think their children, what do they know about well-being? Let's ask their parents. And it's absolutely frustrating. So I do research in children's mental health. And every time we try to publish something where we've asked children, about their own mental health. We will have reviewers, which are generally other scientists who will say things like, but you didn't ask their parents and surely parents are the better reporters. And I'm like, why? Why do you think a teenager's parents will know more about the teenager's well-being than the teenager themselves? Um, so I think it's a broader issue and there's lots of things that feed into this sort of um, lack of focus on collecting children's well-being from children. I think it's a, probably a broader issue, not just in well-being as well. Like we generally, as a society, don't listen to children's voices very well. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we've been thinking a lot about the reasons for this at the Children's Society. And when you think about it, the state does so much more for children than it does for almost any other group in society. You know, we educate them, we provide children social care, we provide health care, we provide early years support, youth services still in some areas. And I think one of the issues is that because the state does so much, it kind of looks at children in terms of these different needs. So we've got outcomes for social care and we've got outcomes for education and we've got outcomes for health. And it doesn't see the whole child. It doesn't realize, I think, when we're making policy that actually all of these things, of course, are connected. And so there's something about the way that we kind of perform upon and to children rather than with them as a, as a society and as a state that I think makes this a really tricky thing for us to get our heads around. And then not least, as Pravita was saying, the fact that we just don't believe children, we don't take their voices seriously. One of the things that frustrates me most is um, something that often people talk about in terms of children being a debate about well-becoming or well-being. And we focus so much on making sure that our children become good adults, that they become productive members of adult society. It's one of the reasons why we put so much emphasis on educational attainment, because we want children to get good jobs and pay their taxes, rather than focusing on them actually being happy in the here and now and in the today. And so the consequence of that then is, you know, it feeds into this idea that their voices don't matter now, they only will matter tomorrow when they can vote, when they can pay tax. And I think all of these things and their big societal kind of prejudicial attitudes and all sorts of things feed in together to making a situation where we don't really know how to listen to children. I would say from my own experience of, of measuring well-being in the schools I've worked in, part of the problem is not knowing how to do it kind of effectively or reliably. Um, so, you know, when I, when I was looking to, to measure wellbeing, um, in my last two schools, you know, the first thing I did was just, just try and do my research. And, and my, my first kind of experience was I was completely bamboozled by how many different types of wellbeing measured there were for children, and young people. So I felt, I found this kind of paradox of choice. I literally didn't know which one to choose. Luckily, because I had kind of contacts in the in the world of real well-being, I reached out to, to kind of experts that might know. So I, I spoke to Nancy Haight, the uh, What Works Centre for Wellbeing. I, I uh, knew someone at Anna Freud Centre and I kind of asked them. Uh, then very helpfully, the Anna Freud Centre kind of published this wellbeing toolkit for schools, um, which listed these different kind of validated measures and said what age groups they could be for and it was all really helpful stuff uh, but still there were there were at least 30 measures on the Anna Freud toolkit and and I was still like I don't know which one to use and the reason I went with as I said earlier that the good childhood index is because I was thinking well if I'm asking the same questions that the children's society are asking thousands of children then at least we've got some benchmarks to compare our children against to uh, the national average or these national averages but what was really interesting at my school was that uh, in my current school last year we did the children's well-being survey in terms of averages and overall scores like you know we looked like we were we had some really happy children the overall the picture was looking really good um, luckily we were using a tool called bounce together that that allowed us it's a well-being measurement platform that allowed us to kind of dig down in the data we could compare girls to boys, we could compare different classes, we could then look at SEN 
children compared to other groups of children. And it was only when we started to explore the data, did the, those averages hide, we could see what the averages were hiding and that some groups were, were reporting significantly lower levels of satisfaction, say with relationships with their friends or, or with their peers. And that was really telling. And I think some school, many schools, including ours in the past, would just look at these headline averages and think, oh, you know, our kids are doing fine. We just keep doing what we're doing. But actually when you explore the data, um, and you need decent tools to do this. You can't, I don't think you can do it with things like SurveyMonkey and these kind of off the peg tools. Um, then you, you start to get a more nuanced picture and then you can start to tailor what you're doing at your school to make sure that all children and all groups are flourishing and, and happy in the moment and, and um, yeah, satisfied with the school they go, go to and the relationships they have and the, the work they're doing in the school environment, everything. It sounds like there's still a big and important gap in terms of emphasising the importance of well-being and measuring well-being at the sort of national level that's um, really putting it top of the agenda. But lots of progress at individual schools with researchers and with other communities that are looking at well-being. So to what extent is, is this progress really moving us in the right direction and where is there opportunities for it to become much more and mainstreamed and much um, higher up the government agenda as well as something to focus on. I think we're in a really positive but quite tricky place because people are paying much more attention to children's well-being. The crisis with COVID has magnified it in ways, you know, that were kind of unthinkable, you know, two, three years ago. Um, I think one of the problems then, though, is that how do we get a, how do we get a standardised picture where we can kind of look across the piece and truly kind of understand at a national level? You know, I think one of the things that were a, a civil servant or, or a government minister on the call say, they would probably say, well, everyone's getting on with it. They don't need us to do it nationally. They don't, you know, it's not necessary. People can just do it on their own and we can empower them to do that. And I suppose that argument for me does hold some water. You know, I think it's really important that in schools like Adrian's, you can sit there and look at the different groups and dig into the data and have that understanding and put names to those numbers as well, because you know, you know, as a, as a teacher, there'll be certain young people who you're worried about. But at the same time, we spend millions, millions and millions of pounds on children every year in through public policy. And it just feels like to a certain extent we're doing it in the dark because we kind of know what works for education. So we make some decisions about, you know, education there. And then you suddenly realize potentially one argument that I would make is you ended up with a, you know, a curriculum and a school system that's highly competitive, quite stressful, not very pleasant for children and young people and for teachers. And that might be making young people ill. And then that leads to Pravita's work looking at mental health and thinking, you know, well, you know, why have we got these young people who are struggling so much with their, with their mental health? And um, and you can see fallouts there in social care where families break down because they can't cope with some of the pressures that are being put on them. So for me, I don't see how we can have well evidence-based directed policymaking that is holistic and is going to improve outcomes for children across the board without kind of taking the blindfold off and having some data to work from. But I was just wondering what you all thought um, were the most compelling findings from the evidence so far in terms of what we should be doing to improve children and young people's well-being if i start from a from a school and education perspective um in, in terms of the things that 
looking at the evidence that I think are the most important for impacting, positively impacting children's mental health and well-being whilst at school. I would say fundamentally schools need to adopt a whole school approach to mental health and well-being. There are many strands to that, but, but ultimately it means the senior leadership team, the, the, the leaders, the head teacher, the governors fundamentally believe that well-being is a is a core part of a good education that's supporting it uh, the other thing that i'd say is schools need to prioritize relationships so a sense of belonging that, that you create these inclusive caring school environments so for me my answer would probably have to revolve around child poverty in this country one of the findings of this year's good childhood report um, that helps us to maybe have a small insight into why we do so badly compared to our european peers is that we found there was an association between the changes in child poverty over time in the countries and the levels of well-being between the 2015 wave of the PISA study and the 2018 wave of the PISA study. Across the countries we looked at in Europe, child poverty reduced on average by two, uh, by four percentage points over the period. Whereas in the UK, it increased by two percentage points. It may have got those percentage points mixed around. It may have been down by two and up by four or the other way around. But basically, everyone else was getting less child poverty and ours was getting worse. And child poverty is ballooning in this country. And as Pravita said at the beginning, the relationship between children's well-being and, and income is complex. It is not as straightforward as you might expect. You know, you can grow up in a household with less money and be very happy with your life. But we know that it has just such pernicious effects across so many areas of life, both later on in life and, you know, for, for adult mental health and adult well-being. But for me, the reason why I find it particularly upsetting and I find it unjust and almost cruel is because of the stress it puts on relationships. And we know that relationships are the very centre of children's well-being. But for families who are struggling to make ends meet, to put food on the table, to balance jobs, there are arguments, there are conflicts, um, people get ill, there are therefore so many more strains on the relationship, and that takes its toll on child well-being. So for me, in terms of an intervention, thinking about how we actually reduce the levels of child poverty in this country is incredibly important and something that we just do not seem to pay enough attention to in the policymaking sphere. One of the issues, I think try, trying to take a step back on Adrian's point about schools, what they're for, exams, I think one of the issues is we seem to live in a society where a lot of our future and social mobility depends on very few key moments like some SATs, some GCSEs, A-levels. And I don't think that's a very healthy environment to grow up in, because if you have to do well to have a good chance at a decent life in one or two exams when you're a teenager, that's a lot of pressure to put on very small things that really shouldn't matter in the big scope of life. And that's tied up with poverty and inequality. If we lived in a society where you knew that you'd always have the you know, basic enough money for food, shelter, and, you know, living a decent life, then you would have less pressure to have to do well in your A-levels to have a decent life. But then also you'd have more space to fail. The way we grow up now, it's there's so much sort of stress on not failing and that trying something and failing is going to be like the end of the world. Whereas actually the best things that humanity have done happened because we tried something and we failed and we tried again and we 
was successful. We know that the large generation inequalities in the UK, so the Resolution Foundation has sort of published really strong evidence on um, generational inequalities in sort of social mobility, um, just the overall level of inequality, but also how hard or how easy it has become to climb the ladder. And I sort of feel like climbing the ladder has become tougher and tougher, like the rungs are getting wider on the ladder, essentially. Thanks to everyone we spoke to for this episode and thanks to you for listening. You can find all the resources and more information about this topic in the show notes and on our website at whatworkswellbeing.org. Rabbits. Rabbits? Yeah. <laughs> and, and rabbits. Rabbits? Little rabbits. Little rabbits make you happy. Little rabbits are good for your well-being. Yeah.